Mark 3, 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your holy word. Father, we pray that you would be so gracious and so kind to us today that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to us through your word. God, we pray that as we ponder together this passage of holy, inspired scripture, that it would prove to be fruitful in each and every life here today. God, we pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, we pray that you would give us very soft, pliable hearts today. Lord, that we might receive the truth deposited into us through your word today. So God, we love you. We want to honor you as we honor your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The title of this morning's sermon is the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin. How many of you have heard of the unforgivable or the unpardonable, sometimes it's called sin before, by a show of hands? Who here has heard of the unforgivable sin? That's the majority of us in this room have heard this terminology before. I can't remember how old I was when I first heard this idea, this this idea that there is a particular sin that you actually cannot expect to be forgiven of if you commit. But I certainly was still in elementary school. I was a young, young man at that time. And I remember the thought of this sin that was so egregious that God Almighty himself says, no, I'm not willing to forgive that sin. It definitely struck fear in my young heart. And it also created some questions for me as a young child. I remember asking myself, First of all, what is this sin? Because this sounds awful. Like, what, what could that possibly be that could exclude me permanently 
from the kingdom of heaven. I also remember asking, what if I commit it? What does that mean for the rest of my life? And then lastly, I remember thinking to myself, have I already committed it? And being a little bit bothered and concerned by that, rightfully so. In certain Christian traditions, this has been thought of to be certain extreme sins that would qualify as, again, an unforgivable sin. And so sometimes it's been sins like adultery that have been lumped into this category of unforgivable sins. It's adultery or perhaps murder, or maybe it's renouncing your faith in Jesus Christ in the face of persecution. All of those at different times and places in church history have been identified as unforgivable or unpardonable transgressions. But the good news at the outset is that we know that none of those are the unforgivable sin. And we know that first and foremost because of the context of what Jesus says here in and around this teaching on an unforgivable sin. You'll notice that there's no mention of adultery or murder or renouncing your faith there. But what's more is we know as we look at the rest of Scripture that there are great examples of people who have committed those very sins and yet still experience the forgiveness of God. King David in the Old Testament, for example, was both an adulterer and a murderer, and yet we are given every reason in Scripture to believe that we will see David in heaven. We can think of the Apostle Peter who, in the face of pressure and persecution, denied that he even knew Jesus three different times, and yet Peter was forgiven and restored by our Lord Jesus. It is tragic to think about how many Christians throughout or at least professing Christians throughout the history of the church, who have committed some of those very horrific and serious sins, have believed that they couldn't be forgiven and lived without hope. But the question still confronts us this morning, what is this unforgivable sin? If it's not adultery or murder or renouncing your faith, what exactly is it? And further, are we capable of committing this sin today? Like, are you and and me, are we here today... Uh, facing the potential that we ourselves could do this, that we could actually commit a sin from which there is no coming back? Well, this is no trivial question. And thus, I would suggest to you that all of us here this morning ought to listen to the teaching of Jesus with great earnestness and attentiveness and with very soft hearts. Before we get into the specifics of this unforgivable sin which Jesus talks about, of course, here in verses 28 through 30, we need to just zoom out and we need to kind of get our bearings on the broader issue that's going on in the passage that we've read here together. We could summarize this section with this heading, Misunderstanding Jesus. What's really going on in these these verses that we've read is that there is fundamental misunderstandings about who Jesus is. And there are two groups of people presented to us who are both, in different ways, misunderstanding who Jesus, the Messiah, actually is. The first group of people are, surprise, surprise, members of his own family. We read about them in verses 20 and 21. And then again, Mark picks up their story in verse 31 to 35. The other group in this text that are fundamentally and horrifically misunderstanding who Jesus is are the scribes and likely the Pharisees with them. 
And their misunderstanding is explained for us in verses 22 through 30. But let's begin where our text does with his family. Look again at Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So his family here grossly misunderstands who Jesus is. They're going to claim that he's out of his mind. And we could summarize their misunderstanding this way, and I'm just putting this as the heading over these two verses. It's a disparaging misunderstanding, for sure. It's slanderous. It's not true. It's demeaning to Jesus. So we can call it a disparaging misunderstanding. Jesus has just at this point in Mark's gospel returned from being on a mountain where he had appointed 12 men who would be his apostles. And it's becoming evident to everyone, including Jesus' family by this point, that this movement that is beginning to, to take shape under Jesus is showing no signs of slowing down. In fact, it's actually showing every sign that it's just getting going, like things are really beginning to snowball. Things are ramping up. And so when he and his newly appointed apostles return home to Capernaum in verse 20, which is Simon Peter's house, we find that immediately the crowds are there once again. And just like in the previous scene on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, it appears that the crowds are here and they are once again pressing in on Jesus, probably attempting to experience healing and deliverance from him. And they're pressing in on Jesus so much so that we actually read him and his disciples can't even eat food. The crowds are just literally clinging all over them. They can't even eat food. And all of this prompts his family to do a little family intervention. You know how those work, right? We've seen them on TV shows. You get the whole family together. You bring in the one member of the family who's in need of intervention and they're surprised by it. They don't know what's coming. And yet the family insists that this person will get treatment or help. We're intervening. Things are that serious in your life that we have to step in and we've actually got to help you and free you from what's going on. And so the family of Jesus here is attempting an intervention right here at this point in his ministry. And on what grounds do they justify this intervention? Well, we read about it there in verse 21. It's on the grounds that he is out of his mind. In the Greek, that means exactly what you think it means. They are saying to themselves, he's lost his mind, he's crazy. Jesus is not mentally stable. And so we have to intervene. Now, why would they think this about Jesus? I mean, this is Jesus, the Messiah. This is Jesus, the Son of God. What is Jesus doing that would cause his family to conclude that he's actually crazy? Well, the issue here is the things that Jesus keeps saying and doing. Jesus is saying things that his family just cannot get their heads around. And Jesus is doing things that his family just can't quite get their head around. They can't understand why he's saying and doing the things that he's doing. In fact, it's the very same things that he's saying and doing that brought him on the radar of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians that have brought concern to his own family. 
I mean, who talks like this guy? Who looks at a person and says, hey, I have authority to forgive your sins. Who in Jewish society, other than a crazy person, says, I'm going to just violate Sabbath traditions. I'm going to violate dietary guidelines. I'm going to violate all of our sacred cows. I'm just going to live my life this way. His family's looking at him and they're going, we don't know what to make of this. Jesus has lost control. He's challenging the authorities of all of the religious leaders in Israel. And in an honor-shame culture, which the ancient Near East certainly was, all of this is so much more than Jesus' family can handle. I mean, this is bringing shame and dishonor on the family of Jesus that he's becoming this renegade and this person who's close to being ostracized from kosher Jewish society. And so they seek to take him away. The word seize here is a very strong word. In the Greek, it means to arrest. It means to seize. It means to take possession of a person. So what we're meant to understand here is that Jesus's family comes to this house in Capernaum on this day on a mission to forcefully remove Jesus from his ministry. Presumably, they want to take him home to Nazareth and maybe put him in rehab. We don't know. Now, I find it remarkable that Even Jesus' family, those closest to him, misunderstood both his identity and his mission. The people that had known him his entire life, they just cannot understand who this guy actually is and what he's actually about. And listen, until they themselves are filled with the Holy Spirit and born again, they're not going to be able to get it. All that he's doing, his kingdom work is just going to keep looking crazy to them. And friends, this is a good reminder and hopefully I think an encouragement for all of us as Christians here today. True kingdom ministry always looks crazy to non-believers. It's hard for them to get their head around your life if you're living on mission for Jesus. People who, don't, who do not honor Jesus or live for Jesus will be scratching their heads. They're going to look at you, college student, and they're going to say to you, why in the world are you denying yourself certain pleasures that you could be living in right now? Why are you doing that? Who would do that? Come out and just party with us and live the way that we're living. Non-Christians are going to look at you and they're going to say to you, why why are you giving your hard-earned money away to a church or to missionaries or to that non-profit? That's your money. Go out and
While his family claimed that he was crazy, the scribes claim that he's demonic. This is a much worse thing to say about Jesus. Now, it's very interesting for us to note that the scribes and the Pharisees, who definitely want to discredit Jesus because he is a threat to their authority, they do not deny that he is casting out demons. That's not their move here. They don't go, oh, hey, common people, listen, this guy's a fraud. He's a fake. He's never driven any demons out of anybody. That's not their argument. Because Jesus has been driving out too many demons from too many people. He's been healing too many people for them to make that argument. The evidence is overwhelming that there is something unique about this Jesus. This Jesus is endowed with some serious power that we ourselves don't even possess. And so they make a move here. They can't deny the power, but they can discredit the power. And what they do here is they say that the power that people are seeing in Jesus is a power that has come, if you're a Star Wars fan, from the dark side. It's a power that's come from the devil, from the demonic realm itself. They make the audacious claim, the slanderous claim, the blasphemous claim that the power on display in the life of Jesus as he's delivering people from possession by the devil is the devil's power rather than the power of God. They claim he's possessed by one called Beelzebul. And they claim that he's in league with Satan. Now nobody, no scholars know for sure who Beelzebul is referring to. There's various theories out there. But nobody knows for sure. But, but it's clear here that the argument that they're making is Jesus himself is possessed by some demon. And they go on to say that, that it's through the power of the prince of the demons that he cast out the demons. So whatever they're specifically saying he's possessed with or whomever he's possessed by, their argument is he's working in the power of the prince of the demons, the power of Satan himself. And so unlike the disparaging accusation made by his family, this accusation will ultimately prove to be damnable. It makes them guilty of an eternal sin. Now how does Jesus respond to this blasphemous accusation? Well, there's two ways. Mark it down. Make note of it. This is really, really significant. First, he spoke to them in parables. He spoke to them in parables. Now, that might not sound that significant to you, but it is. Let's read verses 23 through 27 in these parables, and then let's talk about what this means. Verse 23, and he called them, speaking of the scribes, to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he, first, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Friends, this is the moment in Mark's gospel where Jesus' teaching style takes on a certain form. From this point forward, Jesus will teach them in parables. 
Next week in chapter 4, we're going to learn about the purpose for parables. Why would Jesus teach in parables? But in summary, what we're going to learn next week is that the purpose of teaching in parables now is to reveal the truth to the insiders. By that, I mean those who are responding to Jesus by faith, his disciples. While at the same time, blinding those who have already rejected him, like the scribes here in chapter 3. In other words, for Jesus to now pivot and begin teaching the scribes in parables is in itself an act of judgment from Jesus, the Messiah. He is going to begin teaching these scribes through parables so that they are blind. They remain blind. So he's teaching them in parables. It's deeply significant. And what does he teach them here in these first parables in Mark chapter 3? Well, he's going to use these parables to show them and to show everybody else that their accusation, that he's somehow in league with the devil, that his power is demonic, is completely false. He begins by asking them a question. Here's the question. How can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus is going to argue to them, this is illogical. How can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus is saying to them, if I'm casting out demons in the power that Satan gives, then Satan is working against, yeah, you got it, Satan. Why would Satan ever do that? Why would Satan give me power to free people from demonic possession? That's where I want people. I want their lives being ruined by my demonic evil power. Why in the world would I, if I'm Satan, ever send Jesus, if he's really my emissary, to go free people from that? That doesn't make sense. That's Satan working against himself, working against his own agenda. And then Jesus is going to illustrate this. He's going to say, listen, if you've got a kingdom and, and members of that kingdom fight against each other and war against each other, there's civil war going on. Jesus is saying, obviously that's tearing the kingdom down. That's not building the kingdom up. He says, or try this thought on. If you've got a family or a household and one faction of the family is fighting with this faction of the family, that does not build the family up and strengthen the family. It just tears the family down. And so Jesus concludes by saying, if Satan is fighting against Satan, his time is limited. He's just destroying himself. That is not logical. So he argues, my power to drive out demons is not coming from the prince of demons. You're making a mistake here. And instead, Jesus explains to them, there is something totally different going on in my life and ministry. In verse 27, he uses this final parable. He says, here's what's really going on. I, Jesus have entered the strong man's house, speaking of the devil and his domain. And I have overpowered him. I have bound him. I've tied him up and I've put him in the closet. And now I am plundering his house. I'm coming in and I'm setting the captives free. I'm going after all these precious sons and daughters in Israel that Satan has had a foothold in and he's been taking control of and I'm just setting them free. I'm delivering them. I am plundering the household of Satan. The scribes have it all wrong. No, Jesus is not working in the power of Satan. Jesus is overpowering Satan with the power of God as he ushers in the kingdom of God. 
And so Jesus' explanation here is wonderful because it tells us this, that Satan's reign of terror is coming to an end. The first fruits of that coming to an end were happening 2,000 years ago when Jesus showed up. And at every single juncture of conflict in his earthly life, Jesus got the win. He won up the devil. We saw it in his temptation in the wilderness. The devil tried to bring him down and he failed. We see it every single time Jesus comes into conflict with Satan's little minions, these demons. They just fall down before him. They flee in his presence. Jesus overpowers Satan and his kingdom. And the reign of terror that Satan has in the world is coming to an end. Why? Because one stronger than Satan has come. Satan is powerful, but Satan is no match for Jesus, the Son of God. And as we think about Advent and we think about hope this Sunday, this is so hopeful for us. And this is hopeful news for the world, friends. I mean, who could look at the world in 2023 and go, man, things are awesome. Everything's great. I mean, we live in a world where, where war and terrorism and famine and disease and injustice just exist everywhere. Those of us that grew up here in the West, I mean, we've lived in a bubble, a bubble of prosperity and security, but that's not, that's not, the, that's not the, the way the world normally works. Throughout history, the things that we're seeing on the news every day are just par for the course. We live in a broken world, a world that sin has entered into and affected everything. A world that right now is actually, is, is being ruled in a way by the devil. The world is under his sway right now. But the good news of the gospel is that Satan's reign of terror is coming to an end. In 1 John 3, 8, we read that the reason the Son of God, Jesus, appeared was to do what? To destroy the works of the devil. The devil has work he's trying to do. He wants to steal, he wants to kill, he wants to destroy you, but Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Everything Satan sets out to do in the world, everything he's setting out to do in your family and in your life, Jesus comes to destroy that work, to give you life and that in abundance. And so Jesus here uses these parables to prove the scribes are totally wrong. They've misread him. No, he is filled with the power of God. But beyond teaching in parables, the second thing Jesus does in response is he offers them the strongest warning imaginable. Look at verse 28 again. And here we're narrowing in now on this unforgivable sin. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, note it, never has forgiveness. What does he mean by that? Well, he means they're guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Let me ask you a question. In reading that paragraph, what was your attention drawn to? This is rhetorical. You don't have to say anything. But what was your attention drawn to? Our attention tends to go to verse 29. It tends to go to this idea that there is this sin that you cannot be forgiven of. It's an eternal sin as Jesus talked about. And that makes perfect sense. 
For most of us, it's, it's difficult for us to get our heads around the idea that God would actually have a particular sin. That he would say, if you commit that, there's no coming back from this. I will not forgive you of that sin. We, we just struggle to get our heads around that idea. But I want to, before we talk about that idea, I just want to redirect our attention to verse 28. Because in truth, friends, we should be more shocked by what verse 28 says. Namely, the fact that all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Think about that. I mean, how do you tend to think about God? I think a lot of people, a lot of people probably think of God as quick to judge, judgmental, cold, harsh. Friends, the Bible does not present God as cold and judgmental and harsh and angry. Instead, the Bible presents God more often as unbelievably kind and gracious and merciful and patient. In fact, when God reveals himself to Moses way back in the Old Testament, on the mountain in Exodus 34, 6, here's what God wants to tell Moses about himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God vengeful and mad? No. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, God is in heaven right now and he looks down on this world that you and I live in, which we can objectively see is marked by a ton of wicked, evil, injustice, sin. We know that's true of this world, but God looks down from heaven at all of the world's evil and all of the world's wickedness and he offers to the world complete and total pardon. All of your sins that you can commit, I will forgive. Any blasphemy, whatever slanderous thing you've ever said about me. Oh, God's this and God's that. I'll never honor God. I hate God. God says, I can let all that go. That's how big my heart is. I'm willing to forgive all of those sins. And so this morning, if you're here and you know that you yourself are a liar, or you know that you are a cheat, or a brawler, or a murderer, even in this room. A fornicator, an adulterer. You practice homosexuality. You're a blasphemer. Whatever it is, you need to know that the reason why God sent Jesus into the world was not to condemn you, but to provide salvation for you. Forgiveness and mercy and grace. Jesus, we've learned in Mark, came preaching the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God. And he said, repent and believe in the gospel. And now we're beginning to learn here in Mark's gospel that no matter what you've done in your life, if you will repent and believe in Jesus' good news, that he can take your sins away, that he is the son of God, all of your sins will be forgiven. This is incredible. This should shock every single Reader, every sin is forgivable. Well, technically, all but one. So let's now talk about this one unforgivable sin. 
What does Jesus say here? He says, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So friends, the question here is, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The context tells us the answer to that question. What has been happening here? What has happened is the scribes have observed the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus and they have attributed his work to the devil. Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit at every juncture of his ministry. And the scribes are witnessing the Holy Spirit at work through Jesus over and over and over again. Through his teaching with authority, through his healing, through his driving out demons. And they've seen this work of the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. And rather than acknowledging that it's the Spirit at work and honoring the Holy Spirit and praising God for the Holy Spirit, what are they doing? They're blaspheming him. And they're crediting his work to Satan. Therefore, in its strictest sense, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing the Holy Spirit's work to the devil. At its core, then, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a rejection of the Holy Spirit's witness and work in Jesus. Notice verse 30 again. It is Mark's explanatory statement of what they're doing wrong here when they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 30. For or because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. How? By saying of Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. See, the Holy Spirit has been making it clear that again, Jesus is from God. And they're not seeing it that way. They're denying his witness about Jesus and they're attributing his power to the devil. We should answer that, huh? All of us together, that would be a lot of fun. Imagine answering that like right at this point of this sermon. And you can never be saved if you do that. The person's like, what in the world? Satan's against us right now at this very important moment. So, again, they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit here by rejecting his witness about Jesus as the Messiah. So can people still do this today? Of course they can. Scripture teaches us that it's the Holy Spirit himself who illuminates the truth for us. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. It's the Holy Spirit who points us to Jesus and reveals to us that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. And it's the Holy Spirit who leads us to repentance. And so, friend, if we reject him and his work, what hope do we have? How can we be saved if we reject the witness and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Therefore, the only person who is guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, is the person who rejects and completely resists the work that he set out to do in people's lives. And what this practice practically looks like in a person's life is a person who feels no conviction for sin, denies the truth of God's word, 
rejects Jesus as Savior and Lord and does not believe that they need to repent of their sin. The person who persists in that state is a hopeless soul indeed. In a way then, you could argue that the unforgivable sin is the sin of unbelief. The Holy Spirit is working to convince you and reveal to you that Jesus is the Christ. He's making that evident. And for us to resist that is is for us to live in unbelief. This is why the Holy Spirit pleads with us in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7 this way. And I never noticed this until this week when I was preparing for this sermon. But look at verse 7. Therefore, as who? The Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then here's the warning. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, what kind of heart? unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Encourage each other while we have today to trust in Jesus. The scribes had succumbed to this. They hardened their hearts to the witness and the work of the Holy Spirit. And they were settled in unbelief. This is a heavy moment indeed. So yes, friends, it is possible to commit this sin today. To be beyond a place of forgiveness. And it's done through resisting the witness and the work of the Holy Spirit through persistent unbelief. Well, let's quickly pivot to the final segment here. Because the scene now shifts once again to Jesus and his family. And Mark is actually going to pick up where he left off in verse 21. So remember, his family wants to seize him. There's an intervention that they're attempting. But Jesus is going to respond to his family. And as he does, he's going to give them and us a new understanding in verses 31 through 35. Let's just read it again and think about it briefly. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is is truly upsetting the apple cart in every conceivable way. It seems that almost everything he says and does flies in the face of the traditions and the customs of his day. One biblical commentator pointed out that for those of us that live in the modern West like America, we've grown quite accustomed to the idea that our physical or or natural family will become very disconnected when everybody grows up. Right? One son or daughter moves to this city, one's in Boston, one's in Florida, somebody else is in Texas, and you talk to each other occasionally on the phone you see each other maybe once or twice a year that's kind of normal for us and because of that other relationships in our lives fill in that void so a lot of us would say man I'm actually a lot closer to a certain friend 
or even my work colleagues or my neighbors than I am to my natural physical family. And that's just become normal for us. But that was not the case in the ancient Near East. Families and extended families lived very close to each other. Oftentimes they lived together in the same compound or the same home. Family businesses were just that back then. They were family businesses. Everybody was in the fishing business together or was carpenters together. So your livelihoods and everything were tied up together with your family. And so in everybody's mind, when Jesus' mother and siblings come knocking on the door, they say, we want Jesus. And the people come up to him and say, hey, Jesus, your family's outside. They all believed that his family had quite a demand on him. The expectation was that Jesus was going to go, okay, hey, hold on on the teaching and the healings. I got to go check in with mom. And he would go outside. But he doesn't. He doesn't do it. His family have no control over him. Once again, we're confronted with the unique and surprising authority of Jesus. He marches to the beat of his own drum. And that's because Jesus here needs to actually redefine family. And he's going to explain for them and for us and for people of every generation who his true family are. And it's not the people at the door. It's his faith-filled disciples sitting in a circle around him on the floor to whom he says, here are my mother and my brother in verse 34. And so Jesus here offers both a word of correction and a word of comfort for us depending on who you are. Some of us need here a word of correction because some of us are very, very, very close to our natural family. We love our spouses and our children and our parents so unbelievably deeply that there's a temptation to make that relationship the most important relationship in our lives. And Jesus is here wanting to tell you, listen, there's actually a more important family than your physical family. It's a spiritual family. It's my family. It's the family of God and belonging to that family matters the most. Our natural family does matter for sure, almost more than anything in the world. Jesus never rejects his family. In fact, his family come to faith ultimately, so he doesn't reject them. And we're not meant to reject our natural families. Scripture calls us to love them and care for them, but Jesus makes a correcting point here. He says, your family can become idolatrous. Your family can exert more control and authority and influence over your life than even God himself, and that's wrong. And so the most important family dynamic is your spiritual family where God is your father and the people sitting in this room are your brothers and your sisters. But Jesus also gives us a word of comfort because there are probably some here today who hardly have any natural family to speak of. And there's all sorts of reasons that that's the case and situations that have maybe produced that reality for you. Maybe Thanksgiving has just exaggerated this a week and a half ago too. The fact that, man, I don't really have a family. You feel isolated. And if that's you this morning, you need to see here that Jesus is offering a profound word of comfort to you. And Jesus is saying to anybody and everybody, hey, I I have a family and I'm willing to let you join it. You can become part of my family where you'll be loved, where you'll be cared for, where where you'll never be alone again. What a beautiful offer Christ gives us. But as we close, I want us to zero in on verse 35. Because Jesus here qualifies for us who this new spiritual family is. Who who is this spiritual family? Who belongs to the family of Jesus? Answer, whoever does the will of God. 
That's it. That's how you become part of Jesus' family. You become a person who does the will of God. Now, what's God's will? Well, one way to answer that is all the commandments in the Bible. Those all tell us God's will. You can just go to the Ten Commandments, for example, and go, okay, if I'm doing all those things, I'm doing the will of God. And if I do that, I'm part of Jesus' family. What you're probably thinking is the same thing that I think, even as I say that, which is, I'm toast. Like, who in this room can say, yeah, I've done that. I've, like, always done the will of God. I'm going to do it this week as well. None of us. Did you know the only person in the history of the world who consistently and perfectly said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, was Jesus? There's no exceptions to that. He's the only human who ever did that. Every single moment of his life. So in a sense, in the truest sense, you could say Jesus is the only one who ever was qualified to join his own family. He's the only one who perfectly did God's will. Which explains, and I want you to see this connection and we'll close, why Jesus defines the will of God this way in John chapter 6 verse 40. We'll put it on the screen. For this is the will of my Father. Our ears should perk up. Because if we can do the will of the Father, we get to be part of Jesus' family. This is the will of my Father. Notice this. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here's the connection. Jesus is the only person who ever perfectly obeyed the will of the Father. And therefore, the only way for you or me to be qualified to join his family as people who have also done the will of the Father is through faith in Christ, whereby the Holy Spirit unites us to him and we become partakers of his righteousness. That all of his righteousness, all of his yeses to the will of God where you had a no, become your yeses. And God looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. He looks at you and he calls you a beloved daughter or son forever. He invites you to join his family. Friends, the bad news of the Bible is eternally bad. But the good news of the Bible is eternally good. Just as sure as there is a heaven, there is a hell. And every single person has a choice to make about what they're going to do in response to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so I think the words of Moses to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 are fitting for us today. He says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I, this is God speaking, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. Amen? Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the truth of Exodus 34, 6, that the Lord, the Lord is a God who is gracious, a God who is compassionate, a God who is merciful. We're thankful that the scriptures teach us that you are slow to anger and you're abounding in mercy. We're thankful that this passage today in verse 28 reminds us that all of our sins, all of our blasphemies are capable of being forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your work on the cross, Jesus, is sufficient to cover all of our sin. And so it is to you and you alone 
that we offer our worship and our praise